a conversation about the legal issues that matter to you. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. It's nice to be here, Pam. Our guests today are going to talk to us about robots and artificial intelligence. Uh, I'm going to introduce them now. Uh, one is Mark Lemley, our colleague, the William H. Newcomb Professor of Law here at Stanford. Mark teaches and researches in intellectual property, computer, and internet law, and frequently appears in court to litigate these issues. He's the organizer of an event this weekend entitled We Robot. Also joining us for this discussion about robots and artificial intelligence is a Herman Flager visiting professor of law, Michelle Lee. Michelle is the most recent former director of the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, where she was a principal advisor to the president on intellectual property issues. Before joining the government, she was deputy general counsel at Google, and she's just reminded me that she's not only an SLS graduate, uh, but once took my tax class. Well, it's a pleasure having you both here today. And, you know, our lives are so affected these days by all sorts of artificial intelligence, robots, machines, and like. But one of the things that I think we sort of most noticeable to us, and there was a recent story about it, is the self-driving car, as opposed to the person who's shaving or <laughs> listening to the radio or turned around to deal with the kids in the back seat and therefore not driving the car. Now the car's... Uh, uh, are, we're thinking about having cars that drive themselves. But recently, a self-driving car that was operated by Uber killed a pedestrian. And you know, auto accidents are a major form of tort litigation in the United States. So when a self-driving car kills somebody, what should we be thinking about? Well, this is a, I mean, I think there's a policy dimension to this and a legal dimension to this. I, I do think there's a natural tendency when something new like this happens uh, to, to make it big news. So there was, uh, as you said, a fatality. A lot of the response to that on the regulatory side was, well, we got to shut down the program. Maybe we shouldn't be allowing self-driving cars. If we did that every time a human killed somebody on the roads, of course, we wouldn't uh, be driving at all. Uh, on the legal side, uh, though, one of the things that I think we're struggling with is uh, that our existing tort system is designed to figure out who's at fault, right? Who's the bad guy? So if you were shaving or texting or drunk when you drove your car uh, and you killed someone, we're going to punish you uh, because we think you did something that you weren't supposed to do. That moral fault doesn't seem to translate terribly well to cars. Now, if it turns out that the car ran over a pedestrian because of some defect in the design of the car, we've got law that can deal with that. Uh, but the question we ask in a normal tort suit, which is, what was your state of mind? Were you being reckless? Were you being unreasonable? That's not a question that just makes a lot of sense when it comes to a car. Right? We know the car hit the pedestrian. We know some of the objective facts about uh, uh, how that happened. But we don't know what the car was thinking, because that's actually a, it's kind of a nonsensical question. Mark, can, let's flush that out a little bit. Isn't there something like, uh, like a program we can look at? Tell us the problem of figuring out why the car failed. Can't we just kind of go back and see what it did and why? 
Well, so we, the good news is we probably can do that, right? That is, we probably have a better record of this than we do with, uh, with humans. Uh, but I think the first question to ask is, did the car fail? Um, now, we think, well, if somebody died, of course, there must be a failure. But it might be the answer that somebody jumped out in front of a car in the middle of the uh, road and no one could have avoided this. Right? Or um, we designed a car in a way that uh, minimizes uh, human fatalities, but it doesn't make them zero. Because if we really wanted there to be zero traffic fatalities, nobody would ever leave their garage. Uh, so uh, we can look at the algorithm right now and say, OK, how, how did you design this? Right? Did you actually uh, have a system in place to detect pedestrians, to try to avoid them? Um, although I'll note that even that's going to get harder over time. Right. Uber turns out to be both the maker and the owner of this car. But that's going to be less and less true. And the world of the future is not going to be people who sit down and write algorithms. It's going to be self-learning AIs, AIs that over time figure out uh, how to avoid traffic problems uh, and do so in ways that their original programmer uh, couldn't necessarily replicate because they're training on a giant data set. Right. What that means is that uh, if you ask me this question five years from now, the answer might well be, no, we actually can't figure out why the car made that decision. Right? Uh, what we know is that the car was sort of training itself to be uh, safer and safer. And so maybe that means it thought this was the safest thing to do. Uh, but maybe it means it just got some bad data or the training algorithm was awry. Uh, but it's hard for us to know which of those things is true. I mean, Michelle, when we talked a couple of days ago, one of the things you did inspired me to look at something called the moral machine. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about something Mark brought up, which is the car has to make a choice sometimes. Does it continue going straight, or does it swerve to the side? And who lives and who dies? Yeah, so that's a very good question, Pam. And uh, our driverless cars will have to make these difficult um, ethical decisions based upon ethical values. And should the autonomous vehicle sacrifice the passenger or the pedestrian on the street? And does it make a difference whether it's a person who's on the street versus a cat, a dog, or a squirrel? Also, what happens if the person, if it's a person, is young versus old? Or what if the person is law-abiding or not, high social status, or low social status. So these are all questions that, if you look into the future, our autonomous vehicle programs are going to have to make a decision on. And it may also differ depending upon the number of people involved. What if there's one occupant in the autonomous vehicle car and multiple people on the street or on a bus? So all these decisions turns out, according to a study uh, conducted by the MIT Media Lab, asking some 4 million people across the globe uh, there are no clear-cut answers to some of these questions, as you might expect. And it can vary by country, within country, and even by geographic region. So there seems to be strong consensus to favor saving the young over the old, um, more lives versus fewer lives, uh, and also human beings over animals. But I'm sure you can imagine that there are cultural differences and variances in preferences based on gender, based upon social status, high versus low, and also based upon, at the time, whether the person who you're, you may hit is law-abiding or not. Um, in one study, uh, which compared the results between British and Chinese participants, 
they found that the Chinese participants were less willing than their British counterparts to sacrifice one person to save five people's lives. So there are cultural differences. And in order for us to feel like these autonomous vehicles made the best decision, these cars will need to make decisions that comport with our values. Um, but who will be making these decisions? Will they be the engineers? Will be, they be the car manufacturers? And what sorts of incentives do these car manufacturers have to protect the occupants and the purchasers of their vehicles versus the general public, a pedestrian, uh, or anybody else walking along the streets or driving on the streets? And how should these algorithms be programmed to comply with what set of ethical values? And can and should our society try to come to some common agreement and if not, should the cars be programmed differently based upon um, the intended target market? And we all know that cars move across geographic regions. So what happens when you transport a car into a different geographic region? Do you then have to reprogram, reprogram and recertify? So there are all these issues. Where do you draw the line? And what I will note, as uh, we were chatting before, that Germany's Federal Ministry of Transport promulgated one of the first ethics codes related to autonomous vehicles, which states that any distinction based upon personal features, age, gender, physical, or mental constitution is strictly prohibited. So they've already drawn a line in the sand to some degree. This is Stanford Legal. And today, we're talking with Michelle Lee and Mark Lemley about robots, artificial intelligence, and the law. You know, we're talking, Michelle, about who do you sacrifice? And in law, that's a famous problem called the trolley problem. The trolley's going out of control. If it goes straight, it kills one person. You could make it veer, it kills five. I imagine the usual way this would come up is not, I'm going to kill one versus five, but should I swerve to avoid a dog or to avoid... Some, so, so just to contextualize, that could come up all the time. How, how fast should I drive in these kinds of conditions, making one trade-off versus another? That's right. That comes up all the time. And each one of us, when we're behind the driver's wheel, we all make that decision. Should I swerve to avoid the deer and right, all of this? So, uh, but it's very different when the computer is pro either programmed to behave in a certain manner, consistently so, and does that comport with our values and how we want the autonomous vehicle to behave? Yeah, I mean, I did the. I went to the moral machine after you told me about it and did it, and I was kind of shocked at my results. Um, it turns out like I'm more into law-abidingness than most people. Um, and although I love my cats dearly, I was at the extreme end of willing to sacrifice animals to save human beings. But of course, I would not be willing to sacrifice my own cats to save most other human beings. So I think one of the problems uh, that we've got here is uh, is that we're almost certainly going to be dealing with probabilities, not certainties. And the trolley problem is a hard problem because there is no right moral answer, right? And you can have endless variants of it. Um, but it assumes, right, you will uh, do one act and some people will die and others will live, or you will not take an act and other people will die and, and, and others will live, right? In fact, what the car is going to be deciding is uh, what are the risks? Right? I see the world around me. Uh, how do I minimize risks? And then we need to weight those risks. 
Right, so uh, in order to make a decision, the algorithm's got to figure out, uh, okay, what are the odds of running over the pedestrian, and what's the cost, uh, what's the negative value uh, of running over the pedestrian? Two things I think that are notable about that that are going to be issues for uh, for law. One is that companies sell cars, uh, and the people they sell cars to aren't pedestrians. Uh, so uh, even if you say, yes, car company, you will be responsible if your car runs over a pedestrian, uh, it may well be the case that some car companies are going to make a lot of money uh, marketing their car as one that will, if given this choice, protect the driver, uh, not the people around them. Right? Because if you're the driver, you might value your life more than other people's, just as Pam values her cats more than other people's. Um, uh, but uh, so I think there's a, I, I think we're, we're going to try to internalize the costs, right? But the company's going to make a decision only, not only based on the legal cost, but the uh, the broader economic value. So that's ab absolutely right, Mark. When they did the studies about preferring more, saving more lives versus uh, fewer lives, it was always when it comes to my life, I prefer to save my life over more other people's lives. So. Very interesting. And, and this is, I think this also raises a second problem, which is the only way to get this to work in an algorithm is to assign a value to killing people. Right? I, and uh, we rebel at that idea. Now, as a practical matter, anyone who's taken economics knows, right? we implicitly assign values to human life all the time. We have to. If you want your car to leave the garage, you are taking some risk that it will kill someone. Uh, but we really resist as a society the idea that we've sort of got a written down number, right? and that, well, OK, you know what? It was uh, uh, the, the value of this life was only $3 million, and so it was worth swerving given the, the small risk that I was actually going to kill this person, you tell that to a jury, and the jury will come after you. Yeah. Uh, and I think one of the problems that the law is going to face if it's really trying to determine fault is we're going to look for a bad actor, and the person who made the decision that uh, the life of value of a human life is not infinite is going to look like that bad actor, even if we really don't have a choice. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with Michelle Lee and Mark Lemley about artificial intelligence, robots, and the law. And just to pick up on something you said, Mark, one of the things if you teach torts that you spend time talking about is the famous Ford Motor, Motor Company Pinto case where an engineer wrote, well, we could fix the back end of the Pinto, which was a, a very small car Ford had, so that if you ram into the back of it, uh, it doesn't cause the gas tank to explode. But on the other hand, that'll cost $15 more a car or $400 more a car. Like, And so much of valuing human lives comes in, and we talk about this a lot in law, not talking about it too much. So the US government has statistical values for human lives that range from like $14, I think, at one end of the scale to millions and millions of dollars at the other end of the scale. And we just, we don't talk about that. And that seems to me to be a major problem in the law that doesn't get explored the way it should. I think that's right. And I think one of the things that sort of not just self-driving cars, but a bunch of other uh, sort of robots that might put people in harm are going to raise uh, is this question of whether or not we have a consistent valuation and whether or not it's fault-based. I think a lot of the basis for that variance is our moral judgment of whether you were a bad actor. right? We, we, we treat in, uh, intentional conduct worse. Uh, we treat uh, uh, people who we think we're doing un. Uh, 
unreasonable or unfair things worse. Uh, we might actually want a world in which uh, we've got some sort of a no-fault system, right? That we, the right thing to do might be to abandon the search for moral blameworthiness in machines uh, and say, all right, uh, if in fact the machine caused harm, the machine has to pay uh, uh, for that harm regardless of fault. But what does it mean for the machine to pay? You're going to put the machine in jail? Are you going to find the machine? Uh, are you going to hold the machine's uh, manufacturer liable? Uh, who knows? Right. And this, 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 I think, produces another significant problem for the law. Judges like to order people to do things, right? We grant injunctions uh, to say, do this thing, don't do this thing. A judge is not going to be really happy with uh, uh, the response, sorry, we don't actually know how to do that. We can't program this self-learning AI so that it won't kill kids in this situation. Uh, or maybe slightly more uh, realistic, we can add that into an existing algorithm that we don't fully understand, but we have no idea what consequences it will generate, and it might well make the world less safe. Um, and I think the, um, the legal system is really going to struggle with that. It might be, at the end of the day, uh, to, to take Michelle's kind of joking suggestion, uh, we, we might end up with a robot death penalty. Right? It might be that some uh, cars, some programs, some algorithms just don't work very well, and they're sufficiently complex that the only thing we can do is just pull them off the street. Yeah, take of them off the street until their algorithms are fixed, but keep in mind that these things perform not just by lines of code, but by learning on the data, and you can't control what conclusions they draw based upon their learning on data. We'll be back with more from Michelle Lee and Mark Lemley about artificial intelligence, robots, and the law. Next on Stanford Legal on SiriusXM Insight 121. Giving you the chance to impress your friends with your knowledge of the law. This is Stanford Legal. Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. We're talking before a break about the tragic choices that we make as individuals, we make as societies, and increasingly AI, is, AI machines are going to make. And I want to just echo something Mark said, is that we don't do a very good job of this right now. And maybe this is kind of a red herring. We ought to focus on reducing fatalities. And if it turns out that giving this to AI both reduces fatalities and makes it harder for us to go on this kind of silly search for A versus B and fault. Maybe that's a plus instead of a minus. I, I think that's right. Um, I do think we need to sort of think about how human nature will respond. Um, uh, so Christina Mulligan at Brooklyn Law School uh, has a paper called Revenge Against Robots, uh, in which she suggests maybe uh, you ought to have the right to punch a robot that did you harm. Uh, that sounds ridiculous. Uh, but anybody, uh, uh, anybody who's ever been frustrated with an inanimate object and hit it understands uh, that this is a human instinct. Uh, revenge is a human instinct, uh, and it applies even in circumstances where it doesn't make any sense. And the more we anthropomorphize robots, the more they look like people, the more they are complex and have behaviors, right? the more it's going to feel like uh, a revenge to, to punch the robot that did something wrong to you. 
Well, we've all, some of us have seen a 2001, and you know, it's capital punishment for that AI. So I, I want to switch gears and talk about an area, we've been talking about kind of in the future what's going to happen with these algorithms and everything, but I wanted to switch gears and actually talk about algorithms that are uh, running important parts of the law right now. Um, last year in our Supreme Court clinic, we worked on a case called Loomis against Wisconsin. It involves how people get sentenced. Um, and one of the things that judges do in deciding how to sentence people who've been convicted of crimes is to think about what's the person's future dangerousness? Um, and in the past, judges did a kind of seat of the pants, well, you know, people like this, my experience, or these, these kinds of people seem to me, and then the judge would give the person a number. But a lot of states have moved towards using algorithms for sentencing, and in Loomis, they used an algorithm that's uh, produced by a proprietary company that takes, I think it was like 21 or 22 different factors into account, and then spits out a number that predicts dangerousness. Um, and one of the things that's a, a problem here is these are proprietary companies, so you can't find out exactly how they weight things in the algorithm. But the other question is, what ought to be weighted in an algorithm like this? It turns out, just as a predictive matter, that men are more dangerous or more likely to be more dangerous in the future than women. And yet we have constitutional provisions that say you really can't discriminate against people on the basis of sex or gender. So how should we be thinking about moving these algorithms into areas where to make the algorithm more accurate actually causes you almost to have to sacrifice some constitutional values. Right. So our participants in our criminal justice system are already using algorithms, as you say, Pam, to determine who to police, um, to determine who to parole, and also sentencing, as you said, including how long they're spending in jail. And what I will say is computer scientists, having been one, they do not do a good job of explaining the reasons for their algorithmic steps. And moreover, when the algorithm is learning on data, how you determine how the conclusion was arrived at, whether it was due to the computer program part or the machine learning part, is very unclear. But separately from that, even if you could, and computer scientists can build a clearer algorithmic transparency transcript, uh, I think when applications are used in the context that we've been discussing, there has to be complete transparency. Our judges may not achieve that transparency at this point. They may explain some of their answers, uh, some of the reasons for their, their ruling, but when you're talking about a computer programming having a, an impact on a person's life, you need to know the reasons for that conclusion so that the defendant has the opportunity to present counterfacts. So, so transparency is good, but... Uh, let me just raise a couple of problems, right? Uh, one is uh, that uh, it might not be achievable. Uh, and an algorithm programmed by humans who actually sort of write in 21 variables, yeah, that we could, we could disclose to the world. Um, uh, but as things get more complicated, as the algorithm starts to learn, right, uh, it might not actually make a lot of sense why a particular variable is in there because the, the computer, the AI, doesn't know why the variable's in there except that it turns out to be robustly correlated with the uh, end result we're trying to achieve. Um, and so when we say we want transparency, mostly really what we want is we want to understand. We want an explanation. Uh, and we might just have to get over that. 
uh, right? That is, the computer might well do things uh, that turn out to have positive uh, effects for reasons we don't understand, and that's going to be really hard for humans to struggle with. Now, the second problem, I think, is uh, we want transparency because we want to be able to identify things that you are taking into account that we don't want you to take into account. Uh, and I think that's right. Uh, the, the two things I'll note about that are, first, uh, there's a trade-off. Right? Men are more likely to commit crimes. And we can decide as a legal matter, we do not want to take that fact into account. We want to blind ourselves to it uh, because we think that society benefits from not actually treating people differently on the basis of this class. But we have to understand that what we are getting as a result is a less accurate prediction than we otherwise would. And the second thing I'll note is that um, Part of the benefit of transparency is we actually learn what's going on under the hood. Part of the harm of transparency is we actually learn what's going on under the hood. And if you think judges are not, in fact, treating men and women differently when it comes to sentencing right now, you are kidding yourself. They will never say it. They might not even be doing it consciously. But I guarantee you they're doing it. This is Stanford Legal. And today, we're talking with Mark Lemley and Michelle Lee about artificial intelligence, robots, and the law. Michelle, how do you, you've heard Mark kind of respond to that concern. And one of the responses that resonated with me, and I knew Mark would give it because we've worked together so long, I know that we think in the same patterns. It's a one-sided test because we're never going to ask the judge for that transparency. So how do we... How do we deal with this when it comes to the algorithms? Is, is more required of the computer algorithm than the algorithm the judge has in her mind, which undoubtedly can't help but make a determination of dangerous noting things like probably gender? I, I do think that computer algorithms that are making these life-impacting, impactful decisions should be held to a higher standard. There should be complete transparency to the extent possible on the reasons why the computer algorithm is producing the answer. And if those are don't comport with our values, we need to be able to program it so that it can, to the best possible degree, self-correct. Now, in our judicial system, we have this notion of discretion. And the judges have a fair amount of discretion. And that has its pluses and its minuses. It allows for bias. But um, on the other hand, it's sometimes that element of human compassion that we all hope that we have in our judicial system. So it'll be interesting to see how a computer algorithm that squarely articulates what the factors, um, how that can take into account human compassion, and if the judges would actually intervene based upon all the review of all the data, would they even feel compelled to intervene and second guess or circumvent the computer's recommendation? So is a mixed system of humans and machines better than either, or is there this danger if you kind of toggle back and forth between them? Uh, so I, I think the answer might well depend on the machine. Um, when it comes to cars, a mixed system is horrible. Uh, if we could move instantly to a world in which only self-driving cars uh, had a lane and no, no humans were involved in that lane, we'd already be in a situation uh, uh, where, where the cars can take care of themselves pretty well. Right? The real danger is crazy people uh, who come swerving into the lane, who drive too fast, who drive too slow, uh, who are texting, who are drunk. Um, and pedestrians. Uh, right. Well, this, yeah, pedestrians are definitely a problem. I, I, think, I, <laughs> I, I think we'll see self-flying planes before we see fully autonomous self-driving cars for that reason. They're just fewer things to hit that are, that are causing problems. Um, but, but I do think um, that 
uh, we've got to uh, we've got to deal for the foreseeable future, right? Not just with um, uh, car self-driving cars and their problems, but how they interact with unpredictable humans. And I think cars are going to be making predictions about other car how other cars, how pedestrians are going to behave. Uh, and when people defy those predictions, when they step out in front of the street, or when you move to a country uh, where, uh, unlike the United States, where the norm is if you walk out in a street, you make eye contact with the driver to make sure they aren't going to hit you. Uh, in Vietnam, if you walk out in the street and you make eye contact with the driver, the driver assumes you've seen them and, you, and so they, you aren't going to walk in front of them. So they zoom ahead. Um, we're going to have to figure out uh, right, how to interact with very unpredictable humans uh, and build that into our algorithms. And I think that's hard. I, I do think that the interaction between uh, the computer and the human is a very intricate one that needs to be worked out because at some point if you're in an autonomous vehicle and you think it's driving and it knows all the facts, you're number one not going to be aware of the situation to be able to step in in a crisis situation where you need to. Um, so, and similarly, if you've, you're a judge and you've been told all the data indicates through the hundreds of thousands of cases that this is the proper outcome, how likely and how willing are you to step in to overcome? And of course, we saw the, the, that first phenomena, perhaps, in the recent fatality, where somebody that was ostensibly watching over the computer got kind of lulled into a sense of complacency. I wonder if we could do a kind of a lightning round uh, now for you two uh, on your biggest fears. So uh, biggest fear of robots in the next 10 years. Uh, so, so let me answer with a story. Um, uh, this involves training self-flying drones. And the, the way we're training the self-flying drone is we want the drone to, uh, we put it somewhere in a circle. We want it to go to the middle of the circle. And it's a learning AI, so we're, we've got a feedback algorithm. And it's getting better and better uh, over time. It's getting towards the middle of the circle. And then suddenly it's, it, it turns, if it's near the edge, and flies directly away from the circle, completely in the wrong direction. And the trainers had no idea what was going on, and they experimented. It was going so well. They finally figured out that what happens in this training program, uh, if you fly out of the circle as a drone, we turn you off. Somebody walks over, they pick you up, and they bring you back into the circle, and we start the program up again. The drone found a shortcut. If I'm all the way over here, I don't have to fly it's all the way to the middle of the circle. All I got to do is fly to the edge of the circle. And from my perspective, I will be magically teleported back to the middle of the circle. Um, the drone did exactly what we told it to, minimize the effort to get to the middle of the circle. And it did it in precisely the way we didn't want it to. So my biggest fear is kind of the fear of the, uh, the story of the genie in the bottle. Right? Uh, you get three wishes. You get robots that will do literally whatever you tell them to. Be very, very careful how you phrase those wishes. What I worry about is the use of AI uh to create autonomous weapons, uh, where the decision to kill or to take a life is not actually made by some sort of human control. Uh, I would say that international consensus seems to hold that the people should not give up their meaningful human control over the decision to kill. But what is meaningful human control? Um, even today, we have AI augmented weapons. And is a human monitoring enough? And what level of monitoring? What does it mean to monitor? Do you have to be actually selecting the final target? Um, and does it make a difference whether you're using force for offensive or defensive purposes? So these are the questions that I think need to be answered and that I worry about. And one of the good things for us is that these are questions that lawyers are particularly 
well uh, positioned to talk about and argue about. So I want to thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Mark, for joining us today on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM Insight 121.